Truly this is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Giving thanks to God for all the blessings of our lives and for our assembly in God's Holy Spirit. Received a wonderful email uh, this past week from my dear friend and a college buddy, Kim Brody, who watches with us from Staten Island in the city of New York. And he thought that uh, my sermon was pretty good last week. But he said, the pianist, now that, that we said, that was great. So I just want you to know that, Robert, okay? Uh, This morning, as we gather in our time of uh, worship, I want to share with you a reading from the Gospel of Matthew in the 22nd uh, chapter, verses 34 through 40. Uh, This exchange occurs, of course, in the last week of Jesus' life. Earlier in the Gospel, he had had his triumphal, messianic, as it were, entry into the city. He had, quote-unquote, cleansed uh, the temple. He had been engaged in uh, dialogue and sometimes more, not simply dialogue, but quite sharp exchanges on certain questions, such as uh, paying taxes uh, to Caesar and where does our allegiance truly lie? And then uh, secondly, on the question of the resurrection. What is the resurrection? This was a major question in Jesus' day. And one of the uh, parties of the day, uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. Jesus did, preached it, and so did the Pharisees. I think it's probably, uh, probably, I think it's probably true to say that Jesus was a Pharisee himself, and the uh, dialogues and the debates and the disagreements that he has is an intra-party, a, a, a dispute between uh, Jesus and other Pharisees. And so having settled, um, as it were, the question over the resurrection, the Sadducees having been bested by Jesus, um, one of the Pharisees comes um, to ask Jesus another question, picking up at verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. And it really was, in a sense, a test. They're trying to best Jesus at these debates over the meaning of the, uh, the Torah in their day and age. The Torah is an ancient scripture by this point, thousand years old by the time of Jesus. And how do you apply it in their contemporary society? And so they want to know if Jesus is really a truly devout Jew. And so they ask this question to test him. The lawyer asked in verse 36, Teacher, Rabbi, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Now, of course, the Ten Commandments given to Moses at Sinai are the foundation upon which the life of Israel is built, the Torah, the teaching, which shows them how to live. And from those Ten Commandments, comes 613 other commandments enumerated in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, how that law is to be applied. Which is the greatest out of the 613? Which is the greatest? And Jesus replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first 
commandment. He refers, of course, to the Shema. Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall worship the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. The Shema Israel from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, with which every Jewish service of worship begins. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So this is the root of Jesus' religious sensibility as it is for all of Jews of his day and of our own, that God is one and that we should love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. And a second, Jesus said, is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Loving God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and loving our neighbors as ourselves. From Leviticus uh, chapter 19, um, verse 18. Loving God, loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. This threefold formula of the synergy of love. Loving God and loving neighbor and loving self are not in and of themselves the same thing. Jesus quotes, as he's wont to do, scripture. Of course, it's the foundation of his life. His particular insight in this moment is to join together the love of God and the love of our neighbor as we love ourselves as of a peace. Loving our neighbor is not the same as loving God. And loving God, later writers, particularly in the Gospel of John and other places, will say that we cannot love God if we don't love our neighbor, that our love for God is inauthentic if we do not love our neighbor. Jesus, it's the synergy of bringing these ideas together, loving ourselves, accepting ourselves, having the esteem and self-love of ourselves, not as a kind of egoism, egotism, but uh, honest acceptance of ourselves just as we are, and to love our neighbors in the same way, and to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind. We're so familiar with these phrases that it sometimes seems self-evident how we do this. But in fact, really, how do you love God? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. What does it mean to love God? What does it mean to be in love with God? How do we share in the love that God has for us and return that love to God? The medieval mystics of Europe, Jewish and Christian alike, speak of loving God in what would seem to be sensual ways. Julian of Norwich and the sages all talk about loving God as one 
loves another human being physically as well as emotionally and intellectually, spiritually, a physical component, a kind of sensual love for God. Loving God in all the ways that we can love. This is not something to be passed over easily or treated lightly, but a real opportunity for us to think about how do we love? How do I love God in our daily lives? How do I love God in the choices and the priorities, the decisions, the relationships, the actions that I take? It's not simply a question of ethics. It's too easy to follow into the ethical implications of this monotheism, of this monotheistic God, this God who is love, It's too easy to slip into the ethics. Ethics, we can understand, it's external, it's largely about other people, but to really reflect for yourself, for myself, how do you really love God? What does that mean um, in your life? What's the place uh, that God occupies in your life? This, of course, I think is the question of love, that thing which takes priority in our lives, that person or objective, ideal, or person whom we love and cherish. This past week, we had uh, two weddings. Tommy Petraglia and uh, Laureen uh, Maloney were married here on Monday afternoon, and yesterday afternoon, Mark Vakos and Emily Cookson uh, were married, and in part of that ceremony, they promised to love and to cherish each other. What does that mean, to cherish God? to set aside those other concerns or interests, distractions that draw us away from God, perhaps, to give ourselves the time, the permission, the opportunity to truly rest in God's presence, to see in our lives and to see in each other's life a glimmer, a vision, a glimpse of the presence of the divine, the beauty of creation. Michael and Liz, our next-door neighbors, have a beautiful sugar maple, beautifully shaped in their front yard. And this season, its colors were just absolutely glorious. And as the leaves fall around its base, you have this beautiful orange and gold and red in the tree and on the green grass, and it seems to be suffused with the love, the presence of God, to rest, to appreciate, to give thanks for these wonderful, simple, but deeply profound gifts. This love, of course, must be paired with our love for ourselves and our love for each other. It seems to me that the love to which Jesus points in his life, which we so often and perhaps too glibly um, denote as unconditional love, is perhaps more accurately and poignantly identified as a kind of indiscriminate love. A God that a love that does not discriminate, an indiscriminate love that seems to be foolish and and altogether too generous to love 
our neighbors as ourselves, says Jesus. To love our neighbors as ourselves and to love those who hate us and to love our enemies and to pray for them. To love those whom God loves even if we do not ourselves feel that affection or alignment or agreement with them. To understand and to see in each other our true identity as the children of the one true God. Last week we talked about the burning bush and Moses in the name of God. I am who I am. I am who I am. I was who I was. I shall be who I shall be. God is and was and shall ever be the ground of being. We are all children of that beingness of God. We are all children of God. We live in a particular moment in our history where we're aligning ourselves in all kinds of ways. Are you a Democrat? Republican? Are you a socialist or an anarchist? Are you a libertarian or a communist? And we're dividing ourselves along these lines. Relationships are falling apart. Friendships are frayed. Communities are torn asunder. Violence threatens and in some cases does more than threaten manifests itself across these divides. These are not who we are. That's a tertiary identification as a Republican or Democrat, socialist or communist, anarchist or libertarian, democratic socialist. And so we hear a lot about we're not red or blue or purple. We are Americans. We are one people. We belong to and with and for each other. And this is true as well, but that is also not a primary identification. That's a secondary identification. Political and social affiliations and allegiances are tertiary. Our national identity as Americans, that's a secondary identity. Our primary, essential, and eternal identity as, as children of the one true God. We are creators, creatures of the creator who is the ground of being. And in each other, we inevitably find the living presence of God, the spark of the divine that is in you and in me, is in every other person that we meet and encounter. Every child, every person, every man, woman, and creature, every element of creation is beloved of God. This is the ringing and persistent and irrefutable affirmation of the scriptures of God's indiscriminate love for creation. And how can we discriminate on the basis of our particular orientations or affiliations to speak in ways that are hateful and hurtful, destructive of our unity in Christ? So it is then from this love of God that we truly love our neighbor. I don't often uh, quote 
Jonathan Edwards, uh, but today I will. Heidi is a student at the Yale Divinity School. Rachel's a student at the Yale Divinity School. Vanessa is an alumna of the Yale Divinity School. And when you're there, you can go to the Jonathan Edwards Reading Room, the greatest theologian on the North American continent of the 18th century. Edwards wrote, true virtue most essentially consists in benevolence to being in general. True virtue most essentially consists in benevolence to being in general. That is to say, a love for all of creation, including every single human being. So in general, but then expressed in the particulars of our daily lives. This is the synergy of love, which Jesus understands fully and holds out uh, to those who heard him in the temple in the first century and holds out uh, to us today. To hold on to our essential, true, eternal identity as children of the one true God, those who claim to follow Jesus. Not Americans, not Democrats, Republicans, socialists, anarchists, communists, or libertarians, but children of the one true God, one people, one God, one creation, one love of God, of ourselves, of our neighbors, of our enemies, those who hate us, of all creation. Thanks be to God. Amen.